Awesome. Hey, everybody. So we believe as a church that Jesus speaks to us through his word. So after I read this text, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you guys are going to reply, thanks be to God. Can we all do that? Awesome. This is a great way to honor God and thank him for his word. All right. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys feeling today? Such a lively bunch, the 10 a.m. It's just, it's so nice. Uh, one second. So I have the honor of, you know, leading us into our new series through Jonah. If we haven't met yet, my name is David Wade. Uh, my wife Candace and I were actually embedded church planters here at Park Hill. Uh, and I've done ministry stuff, preaching and making disciples and leading community groups pretty much since I got saved for like the last 12 years. But my background is actually creative writing. I studied screenwriting and fiction in undergraduate and grad school, and then I've taught creative writing to undergraduate students and high schoolers for a few years. Now, Jonah, this new book we're about to enter into, is scripture. It's God-breathed, divine revelation, the word of God, true and infallible for us now. But Jonah is also a story, which makes me really happy because I know stories. The, the Bible is a collection of God's communication to us through stories, poetry, songs, proverbs, teachings, divine histories, etc. all of which are scripture, yes, but they're also literature written by humans with God. It didn't, the Bible didn't just like fall out of the sky, it was composed. Think of it like a divine library, united to tell one overarching narrative of God's relationship with humanity. Now Jonah is two pages in that overarching narrative, and its particular genre is story. And this is important because this is Jesus' Bible, right? Jesus read Jonah. And he read it as a story, and I know how to read stories. I know what to expect when I'm looking at a narrative. I know how to break stories down. In fact, the basic working parts of a story, the core equation, if I can just take you to class for a second, is actually quite simple. Story equals character plus want times conflict. Uh, this is like the kind of algebra that I'm good at. You know what I mean? Uh, not real algebra. Uh, that's what makes up a story. Any good story has at its center, at its heart, a character who wants something that is hard to get. At the technical level, a really good story has multiple characters with competing wants, all trying to get what they want in relation to one another, and that's where the conflict unfolds as they're trying to achieve their separate goals. Think like Lord of the Rings or even a show like Succession. And Jonah, at a technical level, is a really good story. There's two main characters in Jonah, uh, and unfortunately, neither of them are a cucumber or a tomato. <laughs> I don't know what you were expecting. Um, 
In fact, the big fish isn't even the star of the show. The, the fish is only mentioned three times in only two of the 48 verses. No, the, the two major players here are Yahweh, the Lord, who is mentioned 39 times in 48 verses, and Jonah, after whom this book is named. And both of these characters want something different, which sets the stage for the whole conflict to unfold. See, Yahweh wants Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, and Jonah wants to not do that. And as you already know, there's only one true protagonist of any biblical story, and it's evident from this first scene. In these three verses alone, the Lord appears in the beginning, the middle, and the end of the text. One of the things that we're going to learn over the next few weeks is what happens when our desires come into conflict with God's desires and how he responds to us. And we're going to see that God always meets us with more grace and compassion than we expect, no matter how far away we feel or how far we try to run, even as he addresses our desires and corrects them to bring them into alignment with his own. But today, I just, I just want to set the stage. I want to help us explore the setting and the explosive conflict already present in these first three verses of the text so that we can see what this beautiful, timely word of the Lord has to say to us now, Park Hill Church, 3,000 years after the fact of Jonah being written. Does that sound good? All right, let's get into the text. So verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. All right, so boom, the story starts without warning, no exposition, no extra details, but the conflict is present from page one. Right off the bat, we meet Yahweh, Jonah, and this other character, Nineveh. Now, Yahweh is the God of Israel, their great deliverer and the only true and living God. And he's giving a word or a message to his prophet, Jonah. Typically, when the Lord has a word for a prophet, it is to be delivered to Israel, either to correct them, to comfort them, or to cry out against their enemies. The, the prophet is like a member of Israel who acts as a sort of divine translator on behalf of God to his people. The only problem here is that Yahweh isn't sending Jonah to Israel, is he? Now, this word of the Lord is for Nineveh, a foreign nation. And this is unexpected in the Bible for two important reasons. And the first is that Jonah is the first and only Old Testament prophet sent to preach against or to a foreign nation. Like of all the other prophets you can think of, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Israel, Obadiah, Zechonephetephetah, you know, all of them, like none of them, they're all sent to Israel. Jonah is the only one sent to a foreign nation. Nation. Israel was set apart. They were called to a special holy lifestyle that was deeply connected to their land and their cultural identity. Out there, outside of Israel, was the other, the Gentiles who didn't eat like us or think like us or pray like us or worship like us. In fact, so much of Israel's story is them trying to find security and seclusion from all the other nations around them some of which is what God called them to at that time. But now God is calling Jonah to do something different, something that no one in his position or with his job title has ever done before. He's calling him to leave the comforts and the safety of home 
and to go out there into the unknown on a special mission, which is a classic way to start an adventure story, right? Like, it's time to leave the Shire, Frodo. Not only is Jonah going on an unprecedented mission from God, but God is sending Jonah into enemy territory to bring God's word to a nation more powerful than his own. That's a big deal. It's not just like he's sending them to any Gentiles. Uh, Assyria was, or Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was the, the big empire of Jonah's day. And they were wicked. They weren't good. While God's word is against wickedness and sin, however, it always carries with it the potential of redemption, of repentance that leads to salvation. Just look at what God tells the prophet Jeremiah. And just so you guys know, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament today. It's like my favorite. If I get a PhD, it's like Old Testament. Except I don't want to teach the languages, and I'm not very good at those. But this part, I really like. All right. So let's look at the prophet Jeremiah. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. This is the heartbeat of the Father, right? God's words of warning against wickedness are always an opportunity to repent, to turn away from sin and turn back towards God. And so if a nation is wicked or anti-God or evil, which will only lead to disaster and ruin, but they receive the prophetic word, if they receive the call to repentance that God puts out, then the destruction that is the inevitable end result of their wickedness will be rescinded. On the flip side, even a holy nation like Israel could miss out on God's blessing by choosing sin and wickedness instead of obedience. God says he reserves the right to change his mind. He is the potter. We are the clay. And so God is sending Jonah to these powerful foreigners to call out their sin, even as he is calling them into a relationship with the living God. Which brings us to the second important reason Jonah's call is unexpected. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Babylon-esque enemy and oppressor of Israel at that time. As I said, Assyria was the up-and-coming empire of Jonah's day. They were the ones with all the military might and money and power. And like every empire before them and after, they used their wealth and power to oppress and exploit the poor, including Israel. Just look at how the prophet Nahum describes Nineveh a couple centuries after Jonah's time. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, Bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring, the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
Does that sound like a great vacation spot? <laughs> Absolutely not. Nineveh was not a good place in the Hebrew imagination. It was an evil place. In fact, later on in the last book of the New Testament, John draws on much of the same language from Nahum when describing Babylon, the great prostitute, in Revelation. This is a city that doesn't just not know God, it is anti-God. It is God opposite. And they had already defeated Israel. Now given the history between Israel and Assyria, uh, one writer says God asking Jonah to go to Nineveh is like asking a Jew who had lost family in the Holocaust to undertake a mission to Germany just after the Nazi period. For our context, that, that would be like uh, right after 9-11, God saying, hey, I'm sending you to the Middle East to preach. Right? Given the history between Israel and Assyria, this is tons of painful emotion bitterness and even doubt that had to fill Jonah's heart at the word of the Lord. I mean, how could you be asking me to go there? Don't you love me, God? Aren't you against them? Whose side are you really on? And so the context helps us see that what feels like very little setting in a few short words is actually a deep and tragic backdrop with very high stakes. The conflict is present from verse one. And one of the first lessons you learn in storytelling is that conflict reveals character, right? How someone responds to conflict tells you a lot about them. And the conflict here begs the question, will Jonah obey? Does he trust God enough to become the first prophet to bring the word of the Lord to a foreign people? to a people who've crushed and persecuted his own, to a people who don't deserve it. And before we answer that question, we also have to consider this other layer that further complicates Jonah for us and makes him even more compelling and even frustrating of a character. Because Jonah's introduction as Jonah, son of Amittai, would have triggered another story in the minds of the original hearers connected to Israel's history. They, they already knew this Jonah. He was an experienced prophet. And in fact, the only other prophetic record we have is Jonah speaking God's word to another wicked people. Another people who did not deserve it. Another people who were deep in sin. Only it was Israel. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 14. King Jeroboam, son of Joash, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of his father, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. So a lot of names in there, but what does it mean? It means that before the actual book of Jonah, we meet Jonah as the prophet who preached the message of restoration and really grace to Israel in a season of their suffering 
even though their king at the time was leading the people in unrepentant sin. This wasn't like a healthy church. They were actively walking away from God, and yet God used Jonah to preach restoration and grace. Jonah's no stranger to bringing the word of the Lord to wicked people, to people who don't deserve it. Like, that's what's normal for him. That's, that's all we know about him. But when it comes to this foreign, violent enemy, Nineveh, he can't do it. Why? There's three reasons. Fear, what I'm gonna call exclusion, kind of like a combination of racism and nationalism and tribalism, and then unforgiveness. So let's look at fear, right? Maybe he's just scared of going into enemy territory. I have neighbors that blast music every Saturday night, and I don't even want to go tell them to turn their music down. This is way worse than that. Like, God is asking this guy to go with no army or backup and walk up and down the streets of the capital city of a major military power who has already defeated his nation, and then he's supposed to call them names, you wicked people, and proclaim God's judgment over them. I'd be scared too. They're not gonna be like, oh, thank you so much. Like, what? It's this fear. Or maybe it's exclusion. Maybe he doesn't want non-Jews to enter a relationship with Yahweh, to repent and serve the Lord, because he thinks Gentiles are worth less than Jews. Like in this time, ethnicity and nation and tribe were so intertwined, uh, they were kind of all this, this one thing, especially for Israel, and so it was easy to fall into the trap of thinking that our people are superior or our nation is the center of reality, or our tribe is the only one that matters, even though that was never God's heart, right? He's said from the beginning, I will make you a light unto the nations. And so by refusing Nineveh an opportunity to repent, Jonah is trying to keep the good things of God for his tribe and away from the outsiders whom he doesn't think deserves it. And what is it for you? It might not be racism or hating immigrants or non-Jews, but we've all centered our tribe and refused entry to others who are outside our borders in one way or another. Like, I've been tempted to wash my hands of people who aren't in my group, to let them rot over there in their echo chamber or in their part of town, quietly waiting for their wickedness to catch up with them so I can feel vindicated. I was right. You were wrong. Maybe it was exclusion. Or maybe it's just because it's really, really hard to forgive our enemies. Nineveh hurt Israel. They killed people he loved. If they get what's coming to them, I'm not going to be sad. I'm going to rejoice. We don't know. I imagine it's a combination of all three. Because we don't even know what the word of the Lord to Nineveh is yet at this point in the story, but Jonah is a prophet. He knows Yahweh, like the giver of the word. 
He spends time in God's presence. The Hebrew for the presence of the Lord, which is what your translation might say when it says he fled from the Lord, it might say the presence of the Lord. And the Hebrew translation for that is literally the face of Yahweh. Prophets were those who got face time with God. They had intimacy with him. And we find out later in the story that Jonah suspects God is going to forgive these foreign enemies the same way he forgives his own people when they repent, and he wants nothing to do with it. When we get to chapter 4, we see that Jonah knew in his heart God's character, that God was gracious and compassionate and merciful by nature. The very things Jonah is not, and Jonah didn't want to participate in God's gracious act to these people. Whatever the reasons are motivating his heart, he does not want to be a part of what God is doing in their lives. He doesn't want them to see redemption. And so what does he do? He runs. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He ran away. You know, in other prophetic narratives in the Bible, uh, it's actually common for there to be a, a moment of resistance after the prophet is called. Some sort of excuse that the prophet makes. Think of Moses. He said, God, I don't speak too well. Gideon said, I don't come from the right family. I'm from the smallest tribe in Israel. Isaiah said, I have unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. Who's going to listen to me? This resistance initially, it's a trope that we come to expect in the prophetic story. But all these prophets resisted yet obeyed. Jonah becomes the first prophet to resist and run away. In screenwriting, there's this plot point called the inciting incident. It's the moment where something new and unexpected happens to upset the status quo. The character makes a choice with big consequences, and the story proper actually begins. And even more than the call to go to a foreign nation, what is new and unexpected here in the prophetic story, the inciting incident is Jonah's disobedience. Like, prophets obey. <laughs> And Jonah doesn't just refuse to go. He doesn't just sit there and say like, no, I'm just gonna stay here in my own business. I didn't hear from God. He knows that he heard God and he, you can tell because he actively runs as far away as he can in the opposite direction. Uh, Nineveh is northeast of Israel and Tarshish is southwest. Imagine God is saying, hey, I'm calling you to go to Tijuana on a mission trip and you get on the next plane to Tokyo. You didn't make a wrong choice, like you, you chose that. You didn't make a wrong turn. You weren't tricked into that. You chose to go somewhere else, right? That's the image and idea here. He's running from the word of the Lord that he heard. Clearly, he's disagreeing with God and deciding to do something different. It's the garden all over again, the deception of choosing our way over his. But the saddest thing about this for me is not simply Jonah's resistance to the call to like go and be like God to the enemy, but it's the person that he's resisting. Twice in this verse, it says he flees from the presence of the Lord. Like 
from Yahweh's face. We don't fully know what's motivating him, but what we do know is that there's some basic distrust in God deep in his heart because Jonah refused to bring his concerns to Yahweh. Like we know he felt some type of way, but he went silent. He didn't speak to God about it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God spoke to Jonah and Jonah said nothing. He just ran. And surely he knows the psalmist's words. Where can I flee from your presence? I mean, he has to know that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'd be shocked if he didn't have Asaph's song stuck in his head as he boarded the ship. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Jonah was a prophet. He knew these songs. He knew the word of God. He knew where to go with his feelings. He knew the blessings of obedience. And he also knew the cost of disobedience. Yet Jonah refused to bring his whole self to the Lord, including his fears and his anger and his doubt. But fear and anger and doubt are normal. It's what you do with them that counts. Like, you're a human being. You're not faulted for having these things inside your body. It's part of our experience. We get scared. We get angry. We question. But you have to bring those things to God. And God has a track record of answering questions and helping those who come to him with all their messy stuff. Like, Jonah wasn't the first prophet to have questions. Moses told God, I don't talk so good. I don't think I can do it. And God sent Aaron to go with him and to help him. Gideon said, who am I and who are my people? And God worked with him over and over again with these over-the-top miraculous signs and wonders to show his presence and nearness to the prophet. Isaiah said, my lips are not clean. And God reached down and touched his lips. But Jonah didn't do that. He didn't say, my heart is hard, or I got all these fears, or I hate those people over there. He didn't even say, how could you, God? He didn't tell God how he felt at all. He just left. Like he just, he quit. And that's the only wrong answer. As we'll see in the coming weeks, it almost cost him everything his faith, his life, his sound mind. And it almost cost hundreds of thousands of people their salvation as well. See, a prophet cannot pretend that the word of the Lord does not exist. God's ways are not our ways, but when a prophet has an encounter, God's ways become our ways. The word of the Lord is not Jonah's word, it is God's word. And God's word is meant to change us for our sake and for the sake of the world. Like, we're not like God. We're not as merciful as he is. We're not as compassionate as he is. We're not as inclusive as he is. We're not as kind as he is. He is so other than us. But we are called to become like him. 
And we need his word to get inside of us and to shape our hearts and to transform us. We need corrective experiences with his presence so that we do become like him and so that that experience can go out and others around us who don't know him can experience him as well through us. Amen? And as a prophet, that was Jonah's main job. Jonah was Yahweh's representative to Israel at that time, the representative of God's heart. And he had an opportunity to demonstrate what Isaiah promised, that God would use Israel to save not only themselves, but the nations as well. Like this was his opportunity to go be a light to the Gentiles, to bring them in to the family that's been in God's heart from the beginning of time. And he almost missed it. Instead of inviting God's word to change him, Jonah rejected God. And rejecting God only takes you one direction, down. Instead of running towards God in his doubt, the Bible says Jonah went down. Three times in this short book, he goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down to the hold of the ship, and finally, as the chaos of the stormy sea consumes him, he goes down to the depths of Sheol, like of death. And each mention is deeper down, further away, and it leads to death. That's where isolation our self-separation from the one whose nearness is our good ultimately takes us. That's not just for Jonah, it's for us today too. My own story, I've experienced this, as many of you have, that, that kind of struggle, that wrestling, that dark night of the soul. I remember the first time uh, someone confronted me with the hard questions about suffering and evil that most of us have had to wrestle with and our faith, and I was a new believer, like 21 at the time, a few months into my relationship with the Lord, and I got really overwhelmed. In fact, I ended up sitting in a dark room in my cousin's house and drank for three days straight. It was super demonic. The sense of despair and hopelessness that I felt at what it meant, like what am I giving my life to? How can I trust? I just, it was just confusing and chaos. It was like I was in the hold of the sea, ship on the stormy sea, getting ready to be thrown out. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't want to listen to a worship song. I didn't want to pray. I was just sitting there. But thankfully, I had this friend who invited me to this like week-long discipleship camp. And nothing in me wanted to go. Like I wanted to just stay in the hole. But I knew that it was like God throwing me a lifeline when I was drowning. And so I went, thankfully. And in my case, I got set free from a literal demon um, and even prophetically healed from some childhood trauma that had been haunting me for years. And that didn't answer all my questions or disappear all my doubts, but it did show me that God was real and that he loves me and that he was with me in the darkness right where I was at. And if I hadn't taken that lifeline, like if I hadn't chosen to get near to God the best way that I knew how and thrust myself back into Christian community in the midst of my deepest darkness, like my messiest state, I don't think I'd be standing here before you guys today. My life would look completely different. I would have just suffered alone and, I, and the word that God had put in my heart, the enemy would have used that isolation to choke it out and to remove my faith. Right? Self-separation is a great opportunity for the enemy to work all his evil against you. The devil loves it when you suffer alone. 
Like, it's not, the cultural things that we're going through right now with deconstruction and all that stuff, the enemy loves you just sitting behind your computer screen or just sitting in the dark room with your feelings, not talking to anybody, not inviting anybody into your process or your pain. Like, that's his, that's his plan for your life. That's not God's, it's opposite of God's plan for your life. Now, you owe it to yourself to wrestle through the tough things, 100%. There's no question off limits. There's no messy thing that you can't touch. But you owe it to yourself to wrestle through them with God in community. Don't just run away. Like, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. It's worth remaining. Because the word Israel literally means the one who wrestles or struggles with God, right? That's the call of a life of faith. It's embedded in the name of our heritage. And yet, even when we run, the good news of the gospel is that we serve a God who came to seek and save that which is lost. And I'm just going to say that again. Even when we run, even when we hop the ship to Tarshish, even when we don't take the lifeline that God throws us when that friend calls you or you start to feel that nudge of the Holy Spirit but you choose your sin anyways, even when we run, the good news of the gospel is that we serve a God who came to seek and save that which is lost. He knows we are prone to wander, as the old hymn says. And see, Jonah resisted and he ran. But Jonah's resistance wasn't strong enough for God's persistence. Nowhere do we see Yahweh's persistence more clearly than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The image of the invisible God, the, the embodied form of Yahweh, as we learned in Colossians. And just like Yahweh will go and snatch Jonah up out of the depths of Sheol and the stormy sea, Jesus comes down to where we are, descending even into the very depths of hell to bring us back up to be with him forever. That's really good news. And so I just want to close by asking a few questions. Like, how do we apply this to us today? And the first question is this. Will you follow or run away? Will you follow or run away? You can't escape conflict in life. I, so much of our energy is spent like, to avoid conflict at all costs. We are conflict averse. But life includes conflict, especially the Christian life. You can't control that you're going to experience conflict, but there are times when you can choose why you have conflict or the kind of conflict you have. So ask yourself this morning, do you want what God wants? Like, are your desires his desires? Or are you heading to Tarshish when he's sending you to Nineveh? Is your conflict because you're disobeying God? Or is it because you're faithful to God in a world that doesn't love him and that doesn't know him and that sometimes hates him? Because that's the good conflict, conflict that we experience when being faithful to Jesus. It's hard, but it's good. See, Jesus' call to all of us summarizes God's call to Jonah. Follow me. 
But so often we isolate or self, we isolate or self-separate, rejecting God when the cost feels too high, when the call is too uncomfortable or unfamiliar, or when we just can't see what is in it for us. But in John 12, 26, Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. Which very simply and very clearly means we go when God says go. even if it's to the people that you don't think deserve it. Which brings us to our next question. Who is Nineveh to you? Who are the people in your life that you fear, that you're afraid of? Who are the people in your life that you're prejudiced or even racist towards, hateful towards? Who's that group or that person in your life that you just can't forgive? Like Yahweh, Jesus heads straight towards the ethnic and political other, the outsider, the enemy, the oppressor, the abuser, the person who does not deserve forgiveness right in the middle of their wickedness. While they're anti-God, dead in sin, sometimes even actively hating him and persecuting his people or trampling on the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Now, all of us can fill in the blank with a different person or group that we think fits that bill. But the question is, will you go there? To the gay bar. To your MAGA uncle. To the dope dealer in that part of town that you don't feel comfortable being in. Or maybe to the insulated rich folks in these houses that are all around here that often seem oblivious to the crises 15 minutes to the south beyond the border or 15 minutes east in the neighborhoods that are some of the toughest in our city. I don't know who feels like Nineveh to you, but I know that God demonstrates his love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like he moved towards us first at the exact moment we did not deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We actually observed, uh, deserved the exact opposite of it. And that's when he chose to move towards us, to come to us. And then Jesus told his disciples, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. Like that's us in this room to be active agents of reconciliation to every fractured place in our culture and society and world. We're, we're called to stitch the broken things back together, to call out sin, even as we call folks in to God's new family. And that might sound like a hard word, but that's the call. When God says go, you go, even when you don't understand it, even when you disagree with it, even when it's opposite of what you think, this is what I wanna do. But the first place you go is to him. Which brings us to our last question today. Will you bring your full self to the Lord? Even when God was speaking some of his most intense words to his prophets, he always kept the dialogue open. Like he met them right where they were at in their fears and their doubts and their insecurities and their questions. And he hasn't changed. Like he's still the same. The invitation is open for you today to bring your full self to the table, 
to bring your full self to, to face to face with the Lord. All your questions, all your anger, all your mess, including your sin and your shame. Like some of us are running from God because we don't think that he could ever love us if he actually knew who we really were. And so we find safety in idols instead, pornography, partying, romantic relationships, or even dead religion where we believe if we just do the right stuff on the surface and pray the right prayers and show up to church on Sundays that we never have to deal with our secrets on the inside. But that's not how it works. You can't hide anything from God. He knows the secrets of your heart. And better news is that None of your sin or shame can separate you from his love, and so there's no need to run in the first place. He's already made a choice about you through his son on the cross. All we need to do is return. So that's some of us this morning, and others of us are running from God because our hearts have become hard towards him. Our hearts are hardened. We just don't understand how God could be good in a world so broken. Maybe we've been hurt by the church and we're tired of racial microaggressions and colorblindness or being rejected by spiritual leaders and kicked out of Christian community for being a sexual minority. Maybe our image of the church has been so formed and brutalized really by Christians who put their politics before people that we don't even recognize the God of Jonah. Like it's super unfamiliar to us. Whatever has caused you to run, and as messed up as some of those situations may be, as justified as you may feel, running away from God only leads one direction, down. So if you're in shame or you're in sin, don't keep it a secret any longer. Don't go down. The call this morning is to come up. Come up for air, come forward for prayer, confess your sins and receive forgiveness from the love of a father who chose, who knew everything about you, knew what you were gonna do and chose that his, his blood, like you were still worth it. You were still worth the life of his only son, the best thing he had to give. Come, be forgiven, but it can only happen when you return and confess and repent. So if that's you this morning, don't leave without getting prayer. In a few minutes, we're gonna have leaders and pastors up here to pray for you on the sides. But there's others in this room, and if you're, if you're the one that's grappling with God or maybe trying to understand the Bible or you've had church hurt, don't do it alone. Don't go down into your dark den of despair and down the rabbit hole and down into your whatever. Just come, come here. Don't deconstruct apart from God or community, but do it with God in community. And you can come up for prayer today. We'd love to pray for you. But a really tangible way to do that is to come to the House of Learning next Sunday at 5 p.m. with Josh Porter, who literally wrote a book on this topic, and to wrestle through the hard stuff together with family. Like, you don't have to have it all figured out to be a part of this family. We want you to come figure it out with us together. Do you hear that? So come up for prayer today. Uh, Drew, if you guys can come up. And you guys can stand if you would, please. I'm just going to pray for us. God is coming to you today. 
Hear the word of the Lord. He's coming through this message. He's coming through prayer. He's going to come through communion. He's coming from the fact that you're even in this building surrounded by believers and people who want to love you and, and know you. And so don't run away any longer. Let today be a day where you come up and come forward instead of going down. Father God, thank you so much for this community and for this family of believers who loves you and we get to walk alongside you and one another to live out your call together. Your call to go to those who don't deserve it, even as you came and went to us when we did not deserve it. I pray that you would soften every heart in this room, let your spirit come alive for us today, God. Uh, Jonah was a prophet who had a special relationship with you, but through the cross and the moment at Pentecost when your spirit descended upon all believers, we don't have to go to somebody else. We can come directly to you. Your spirit is inside of us. And so I pray that you would speak to every heart in this room, give courage, uh, whisper the opposite and cancel out the lies of the enemy. Speak truth and life and love to your children this morning in a language that we understand. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would draw us closer to you, whether that's through prayer, confession, whatever it is that individual hearts need in this room, you know it. And we thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.